So you can also take your Bibles and open them with me to Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 33. If you guys would like a little more space in the back, there is tons of seating up here. I can assure you that the people up here don't smell too bad. Uh, right? Maybe a little bit. We're continuing our series through the Gospel according to Mark. It's been about 10 months so far. I just got to say, I'm getting really tired of it. Um, you know, going through the Bible like this, I'm ready for it to be over. Of course not, man. We're, we're not even to the good part. We're not even to the cross. I've, I don't know about you guys, but I have loved studying through the Gospel according to Mark. It's a small book. It's action-packed. But Mark doesn't waste a lot of words. And he has stuff in here that... Uh, although written to the church in Rome thousands of years ago, is so relevant and applicable for us today. And I think we're looking at a passage that uh, is, is even more so uh, similar to last week in verses 15 through 33. So if you have your Bibles, open there with me to Mark 11, verses 15 through 33. Last week, last passage, we looked at Jesus cursing a fig tree. And this is along those lines in continuing what Jesus was speaking on. It's the theme of the cursing of the fig tree. If you notice in your Bibles, there's a, the cursing of the fig tree. There's what might be called in, in the title there, the heading, the cleansing of the temple. And then right under there is the lesson from the fig tree. And you see the fig tree kind of serves as a, a little sandwich to the cleansing of the temple. And this is a literary device that's called bracketing. And what Mark is doing in these is he's showing how these passages interpret one another. These passages help uh, bring light to the cleansing of the temple, what the fig tree represents. So it starts there in 15. It says, They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. Now, if, if you have a study Bible, or you've kind of nerdy into the, what the temple used to look like, this, this thing is magnificent, the temple. The temple was a dwelling place for God. It was a place where God lived, where his presence was found. It was a sanctuary. And this is, in fact, the, the second temple that was rebuilt after the first temple that was promised to David and built by his son Solomon. That first temple took seven years to build, but it was destroyed in 19, not 19, but 957 B.C. by the Babylonians. Then there was a second temple that was built. It was completed under a guy named Zerubbabel, might, might have gone by Zeb for short, or Zerub, maybe. In 1515, uh, this temple was, was damaged. It wasn't ever destroyed. But a guy named, by the name of King Herod came along and completely restored, renovated the temple, and really expanded it. it about twice to three times the size of the original temple. Listen to some of these statistics. The inner shrine was completed in 18 months. The main building took 10 years. The outer courts were not finally completed until AD 64, so about 80 years after. Sadly, just six years before it was destroyed. But the temple was, was huge and complex. It, the outer courts uh, were about 1,000 feet by 1,600 feet. It was encompassed by 35 acres, what was called the Temple Mount. This is a, the huge building. This would be the, the center of Jerusalem, the center of the Jews. And Jesus enters and he starts to do something that they probably didn't expect. 
It says that he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So when you entered the temple, the first court you would have come to was the court of the Gentiles. The temple was set up in a way that there was different courts allowed for different people, the, the outer one for the Gentiles, and then you'd go one step further into a court for uh, the, the women, and then in step further was a court for the Jews, and then inside of that, what was called the Holy of Holies, a, a special place in which only one person could go once a year after special sacrifices had been made. But in this outer court in, in which Jesus had entered, the Jews had set up these tables. These tables were set up for the purchase of animals for sacrifices as we were coming to the Passover festival. Uh, the, the tables were set up to exchange money so they could have the right currency for the temple tax. Uh, and this would have been a busy place with literally thousands of people buying and selling things. So you can imagine, just walking to the temple of the courts, a lot of people, animals, it's probably going to, I mean, anytime you have animals, it's going to be smelly. You've got this smelly, noisy court that Jesus is walking into. That's very busy. The ancient historian Josephus said that in one Passover week, one year, 25,000 lambs were bought or sold or exchanged. This is a large operation that's going on here. And Jesus comes in and he starts turning over tables and driving out those who were selling pigeons and exchanging money. And if you're like me, when you think about this passage, when you're reading this passage, you might think that Jesus was maybe having a little temper tantrum here, like a toddler, coming in, getting really frustrated and just turning over tables. Or maybe Jesus is acting here like a, an emotional adolescent, getting really angry frustrated, starts acting out in violence. And I think there's two errors that we can, we can view Jesus in this moment. One is that he was just like raging out, like a rage monster. It's going crazy, turning over these tables, being violent, breaking things. But secondly, we can't think that he was passive and, and weak and kind of, hey guys, don't like what's going on here. Let me turn over this table. Let me, here, let me show you the door. Let me just usher you out this way. When Mark describes what's going on here, it's, it's deliberate, it's thought out. It's not raging out, but it's driving out. There's a, a connotation of force, deliberate. This is what Jesus is doing, driving out, overturning tables with force. And he teaches them and says in verse 17, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus is angry because the temple was set up as a place that was to be a prayer for all the nations. The word there in the, in the language is, is ethnos. It's the same word that we get for Gentiles. Means all the nations. This is what the temple is supposed to be a place where all people could encounter and, and meet God. And yet, what the Jews had done is in establishing these tables and, and creating this business in the Gentile court, Gentiles were prohibited from worshiping God. They could not worship God. And this is what Jesus is saying My house shall be called a, a house of prayer for all the nations. 
I don't know about you guys, but when I like to pray, I normally don't go to the middle of South Center Mall. I don't like to walk into a barn and smell horses and lambs and goats and doves. That stinks. Literally, it stinks. What they had done is they had prevented people from praying, from worshiping. And Jesus is driving them out. The temple was not a place just for Jews to come and worship. It was supposed to be a place for all people to come. And Jesus quotes some passages here on on Jeremiah and Isaiah, saying, you have made my house a den of robbers, speaking to judgment, speaking to that this is going to be destroyed, speaking that you guys are missing it, the religious leaders are preventing people from worshiping me. You have turned it into a den of robbers, a place where hypocrites and unjust people go and hide and deal dishonestly. A place in which they thought no one could challenge them or rebuke them. A place where they thought they could find their security regardless of what they did. That just because they were in the temple that they were accepted by God. Many Jews, just because they were Jewish, thought that they were accepted by God. And this is what Jesus is protesting. This is what Jesus is driving out. This is what angers Jesus so much that he drives them out. It's hard for us to think about how kind of shocking this would be because we don't go to temples. The temple is, kind of, is not the center point of our city. It's skyscrapers and business and capitalism. But Jesus is driving people out of the center of Judaism, the center of their religion, the center of their identity. And you can imagine this would anger them. This is what Mark describes. They, they, Jesus does this to them. He starts teaching about this, and the religious leaders get angry. They start seeking for a way to destroy him. They can't do it in public, though, because it says they're afraid of the people who are amazed at his teaching. So they seek in private a way to destroy him and end him and silence him. I think in our Bibles, it, it, this, the, te- the title that's in front of a lot of the passages is kind of misleading, where it says the cleansing of the temple. Because what Jesus is really doing is condemning the temple. He's purging it. He's rejecting it. He's cursing it. The, the passage just before where Jesus curses the fig tree, this is what is happening right here. Jesus is condemning, cursing the Israelites, the temple. The fig tree served as a, a symbol for what is going down here, divine judgment. So much so that as the disciples and the crowd, they leave the temple, they come to that same fig tree that Jesus cursed. And they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, look. Look at this fig tree that you cursed. It's completely withered. It's gone. Meaning just as Jesus curses the fig tree and it's destroyed, just as Jesus curses the temple, it will be destroyed. By clearing out the traitors, Jesus is literally and symbolically cleaning out the temple and providing a place for all people, the nations, in the temple of God. Jesus is directly challenging the authority of the religious leaders. 
is overturning the center of their identity and their faith. And what I want us to think about this morning is, what is that for us? What is our, quote-unquote, temple? What is the center of your faith, the center of your identity? What do you place your hope in? What is the one thing that if was destroyed or removed, you would feel meaningless, hopeless? Do we, as disciples right now, have a faith that's big enough for this Jesus to come into our hearts? To clean out the mess? To clear out the tables? Sadly, I, I respond like the religious leaders do. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm confronted with something that I don't want to hear, when I'm challenged with something, I don't oftentimes go, thank you, God. Really appreciate that punch to the face. I needed to get woken up. Now, maybe you guys do, and you're way better off at this than, than I am, but I think oftentimes we respond like the religious leaders, don't we? It says in that next passage, in, in verses 25 through 33, they challenge Jesus. They come up to him and say, hey, Jesus, what authority, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gives you the right, Jesus, to come into our temple and drive us out? Who gives you the right, Jesus, to overturn the tables in our temple? By what authority are you doing this? Because Jesus, he wasn't a part of the religious elite, the, the official uh, priests and, and scribes. He didn't have the the quote-unquote official authority that they have that they would have recognized? They're questioning him. And Jesus says, I love this, answer me this. I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Kind of puts them right in their place. And Mark kind of describes what, 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 they, what they might have been thinking right here. Well, if we say from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe John? Because John testified about me. John baptized me. John was preaching about me. So, okay, we can't say from heaven. But if we say from man, everyone knew that John was a prophet. So that's going to make us look bad. What to do here? You're here with a pickle. Mark describes their dilemma. They can't really answer. They kind of show their ignorance. They say, we don't know. I think they fear the crowd. They, they, they fear uh, being exposed as hypocrites, but they're kind of exposed to that anyways, and they plead ignorance. The same kind of temptation and reality that we can present and question Jesus, when he comes into our life, when he challenges us, what is our response going to be? Is it immediately to start questioning him? To challenge his authority? To condemn Jesus like the religious leaders do? When Jesus comes into our hearts and overturns a table of our faith, do we get angered by that? Do we seek to silence Jesus to destroy him? Or do we seek to submit to him? To ask forgiveness for the sin that has crept into our life. Repenting and coming back to him. Because the reality is that Jesus is still doing this today. 
the way that the Gospel of Mark was written in a way that is, is present active. Meaning, I think when Mark describes what Jesus is doing, he is indicating that as we see Jesus healing the sick, as we see Jesus calling disciples, as we see Jesus cleansing, calling people out, Jesus is still doing those very same things today. Jesus wants to come into our hearts and overturn the tables of our faith to challenge us. And what we can't do when we see a story like this and say, how can the religious leaders, how can the Pharisees, how can the scribes be so blind and dumb and ignorant and stupid? They were literally seeing Jesus perform miracles and they were still rejecting him. But again, I think the religious leaders reveal something about our own hearts. This is our nature. When Jesus goes for the center, when he goes for our identities, what we built our identity on, what we gain our significance from, what we find our meaning in, what we put our hope in, our initial response can be, get out, Jesus. I want to destroy you. You might want to get angry or defensive, try to justify your sin, maybe use excuses like these religious leaders. Jesus wants to purify us and cleanse us. But he does this not like a raging uh, adolescent or a rage monster, a violent man coming in with anger. He does it ultimately out of love. Jesus has a redemptive, restorative love. He seeks to drive out what is sinful and wrong and out of line with his word because he loves us. Do we trust that? Do we believe that? When you're confronted by the word of God in a way that challenges the way that you live, what is your initial response? What is your response to Jesus? If the foundation is, okay, Jesus is doing this because he loves me. I think that changes everything, doesn't it? If a friend comes to you and exposes something that's damaging and hurtful in your life and you know that they love you, I hope that we would listen. I hope that you would listen. That's what I love about my wife, Stephanie. That's what I love about Will and the people that are close around me. They expose deep sin in my life. And they do it because they love me. Because when, I, when I'm preaching, when I'm asking these questions, we might get the mentality or might think that I'm somehow trying to guilt trip you or, or pressure you or make you feel bad know that ultimately it's because I love you. I want what's best for you. I love you guys. This is why I, I preach on, I, I love you. I want what's best for you. Don't hear me when I ask questions like this or when we look at passages like this where Jesus is calling out sin and, and therefore I think the Bible encourages us to look at our own hearts and see what sin we have. It's not because I hate you. It's not because I'm trying to guilt trip you, because I get around with my pastor friends and talk about whose church is holier. <laughs> that doesn't happen. I want what's best for you, and Jesus wants what's best for you. So he comes into your life, and he identifies what is at the center that is wrong, and he overturns it. Jesus has a restorative, redeeming love. This is why, in fact, I think he comes into the temple in the first place. He wants to restore it. 
See, the whole idea of temple is from the beginning of our Bibles, beginning of time. God created the Garden of Eden, which was, in a sense, a temple. It was a place in which God dwelled with his people. The Bible says that he walked with them. The perfect presence of God right with them in this, this temple, this sanctuary, this dwelling place called the Garden. But in Genesis chapter 3, humanity, Adam and Eve, they decide to put something else other than God in the center. They put themselves. They have a preference, a desire for something other than God. So they eat of this fruit that they were forbidden to. And in that moment, this perfect fellowship, this sanctuary is, is no longer fit for these people, these sinful people. Perfect fellowship was broken. In God's perfection, this imperfection, this sin cannot exist. So God banishes them from the garden. All throughout our Old Testament, we see that God is trying to get his people back to this garden. He established something that's called a, a tabernacle, kind of a, a temporary temple, a little garden that travels, you could say. Then establishes a permanent temple by a prophecy given to, a promise given to David, who then his, his son Solomon builds this temple, a, the dwelling place of God, where God could be with his people. The temple is destroyed, it's, it's rebuilt. And then here comes Jesus walking onto the scene. And get, get what he says. John 2. John 2, verses 19 through 22. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now imagine, you're listening to Jesus. You're, you're in first century B.C., A.D., and you hear this guy say this comment. You think, okay, guys, you know how long our first temple took to build? Really? Look at this thing. Look at this thing that we have now. It took years just to build one part of it. You think in three days I'm going to raise it up? What Jesus is saying is that I am the temple. Jesus condemns, Jesus curses that the building, the Israelite temple, because he is the new temple. He is God with us. He is, the Bible says, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He is our temple. And he comes to, to right the wrong, to restore us back to perfect relationship, perfect fellowship, the garden with God, where we can walk with God again, where we can be freed from sin. And, and now Jesus is preparing a perfect place for us, a place that will be like the garden. No death, no disease, no suffering, no injustice, no racism, no slavery, no war. To be restored to the garden, to the perfect temple on the new earth. Jesus condemns the temple because he is the far greater, superior third temple. A temple that makes all other temples worthless. And Jesus curses the temple too because he is not only our temple, but he is our priest. Like Jesus is the full package, guys. He comes as the temple, he comes as our priest, the, the mediator between God and man. He offers a sacrifice on our behalf so that sins can be forgiven. But he's not only the priest, he is the sacrifice. It's like all in one. 
When people ask you, oh, yeah, where do you, where do you guys worship? What, what temple? Where are sacrifices made? Oh, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. So who's your priest? Who makes sacrifices for you? Jesus is our priest. Right now, he's, he's speaking to God on our behalf. He's our mediator. Well, what sacrifices do you guys make? We don't make any. Jesus already made the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And through his sacrifice, he restores all things to himself. I'm jumping, up, I'm jumping a little ahead here, but the end of Mark's gospel, the end of Jesus' life, as he suffers and dies as our sacrifice on the cross, he takes his final breath. There's something that happens in the temple. That holy of holies, that place where God dwelled, that curtain that separated God from man, torn in two. It's torn in two. As his body is being broken on the cross, that veil is broken. That sin is removed so that all people now, Gentiles, ethnos, all people can meet God in Jesus. It's not just for Jews. Not for people who obeyed right or are of the right race or class or ethnicity. It's for all people. This is who Jesus is. So that what is lost can be restored, so that perfect harmony can be restored, so that we can return to the garden walking with God in Jesus as our priest, as our sacrifice, and as our temple. And this happens not as we put our faith in religious systems, our obedience to rules, or uh, our status. This happens, as Jesus says, as we put our faith in God. That's what Jesus says in verse 22. Have faith in God. Might not have been what the disciples were expecting. As he curses the fig tree, cleanses the temple, say, hey, Jesus, what is going on here? He just says to them in verse 22, have faith in God. Meaning, don't trust in religious system. Don't trust in the temple or your abilities or your tradition. Trust in me. Don't trust in yourself, your obedience. Trust in me. And Jesus makes this trust possible. This all happens as the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and regenerates us and and renews us and restores us. So that I don't want to get a little confusing here with the temple illustration, but the Bible even says in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple? The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit dwells in you. So as we put our faith in Jesus, who is our temple and our sacrifice and our priest, Jesus then comes and dwells inside of us. The Holy Spirit is is with us so that now we are called a temple. The Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. 
the Holy Spirit abides in us and we are continually changed and restored and renewed to look more like Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. I found a quote as I was studying this week from a guy by the name of Tim Keller, who pastors, or used to pastor, excuse me, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. He said it like this. If through Jesus, the ultimate priest, the ultimate sacrifice, your lives are now a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God that was used to shake mountains and killed on contact, if that is really in your life now, I want more than just busyness. I want more than just activity. There should be more than just here. I read the Bible and I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do that. He asks, are you changing in your character? Is the Holy Spirit changing you? The Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you as a temple, is that changing you? Are you actually changing in your character? If you're an anxious person, is it clear that to everyone around you that you have overcome that? If you're an angry person, is it clear to everyone around you that you have overcome that? If you're a feelful person, is it clear that fearful person, or if you're a self-centered person, if you tend to be a self-hating person or a, a self-detrimental person, is it clear to people that you're being changed at the core of your being? That there has really been a radical regeneration of your character? Or are you like these religious leaders, these people in the temple, really busy with all your religious activities? Because the Holy Spirit, once he comes into your life, as you have faith in God, he radically changes you, he restores you, and he continues to do so. Meaning as Christians, as disciples, we are to be continually changed, and people around us are supposed to see that. Is your best friend, is your wife, is your spouse, is your husband, is your family, they seeing this transformation that is happening in your life? As the Holy Spirit is doing his job in your heart. He is indwelling in you. And Jesus gives us some clues how this happens through faith. There's two kind of characteristics that he lists out in this passage. Number one is through prayer, through communion with God. It says in verse 23, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now there's a way to interpret this passage that is very wrong. Sure, you guys can see where I'm going with this. Meaning, in order to inter interpret this passage or apply this passage, we don't just kind of, okay, guys, let's head out to the parking lot, lift up our hands toward Mount Rainier, and move it. I mean, if you guys want to do that, I'm down. Gown. Gaming down. <laughs> I'm down. You guys can use that for future reference. Gown. It doesn't mean that we can kind of lift up our hands and kind of force push Mount Rainier or Mount St. Helens. I don't know if you ever tried this. Anyone? Okay, I have, <laughs> honestly. One time it was raining too, and I put my hands up really hard, and I just thought if I prayed hard enough, it would stop raining. didn't happen. But that's a very immature way to read this. That's the wrong way to read this. Mountains in Jesus' time, they represented something that was very difficult or an impossible task. Moving a mountain in Jewish thought was an image, a way of describing something that would almost be seemingly impossible, very difficult. 
And what this doesn't mean is that if you have enough faith, you can heal your grandma from having cancer. What this doesn't mean is if you pray hard enough, you can levitate. Although I, that's one of my life goals. When I was at O'Day High School and I found out about what, it, what you had to do to become a saint, and I heard about some guys that could levitate when they prayed, instantly put that on my bucket list. So if not in this lifetime, I hope in the next lifetime, as, I, as I'm praying, I can levitate. But anyways, sorry guys, got off the ticket then. It does not mean that if you have enough faith, God will give you whatever you want. Some people believe that and they preach that. Something that's called a health and wealth gospel. Meaning that if you just have enough faith, if you just put it out there, God, I'd like a helicopter, a Learjet, and a Lamborghini. That if I have enough faith, or if God loves me enough, he's going to bless me with that. That's not what that means. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, I think in a lot of these passages that people misinterpret, there should be a little asterisk. It says, only if you pray with the right motive and according to the will of God. <laughs> you know that, that famous passage that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Same one, same little asterisk. Whatever you ask, according to the proper context, the whole counsel of Scripture, Jesus teaches us that we have to pray according to the will of God. This is, in fact, what Jesus himself prays in Mark 14, 36. He says, Father, all things are possible for you. You can move mountains. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I think the faith Jesus is talking about here, the image of moving mountains, is not Jesus saying that we can accomplish miraculous things if we pray hard enough. But we are given the power to accomplish the difficult task of following Jesus. That is the power. We were given the strength to maybe move the biggest mountain of our, our self and our pride, our self-centeredness. We are given the power, the strength to overcome losing our life for the cause of Christ. This is, this is the faith in God. This is what the Holy Spirit does in our life. And one of the marks of that is, is prayer. The second is forgiveness. Jesus says in verse 25, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Again, there's a way that you can misinterpret this passage in saying, okay, in order to get God's forgiveness, I then have to forgive. But that's not what the gospel of grace teaches. That's a religious mindset. Just as our Heavenly Father forgives us, that is to change us to forgive others. In other words, the sign of someone demonstrating that they have received forgiveness is their ability to forgive. This is what Jesus talks about in his parables. He says, to the degree you which, to which you understand your forgiveness, you will forgive others. We don't earn forgiveness by forgiving others. Our forgiveness is a sign that we have been forgiven by God, that he's changed us and that we want to obey God. And if you have a faith in God, you will also have love for others. This is why in, in Jesus' prayer, in the Lord's prayer, he says, Our Father in heaven, forgive us our sins. Not just, hey, forgive me my sins. Forgive my trespasses. A faith that is being transformed, that is founded and 
uh, renewed in the Holy Spirit will work itself out, will demonstrate a life of forgiveness, a life of love for your brother and sister, a life of patience for your brother and sister. If you have faith in God, you will also have love for others. This morning, I want us to think about how is your faith changing you? What are you putting your faith in? Like the religious leaders, like the scribes, like the Pharisees, we can put our faith in, in buildings, in religious systems, in ourself, in our careers, in our families. In our acceptability, in how well people like us or think about us. We can put our, our value and our worth and our significance in, in our parenting, how well we parent. We can put it in how good of a spouse we are. And if you're this, here this morning and you're, you're being convicted, or maybe God re- is revealing you through this text or through the power of his Holy Spirit that there is something in your life that you have built that is at the center, that is not Jesus. Jesus right now is, is asking you, he's calling you. Maybe he's coming into your heart and trying to overturn the table of your faith. If you call yourself a disciple, a child of God, is your faith marked by confident prayer and communion, delight in God and forgiveness of others? Is your faith marked by forgiveness or are you a bitter person? Do you hold grudges? Are you a sour person? A faith that is dependent on God and Christ cherishes him. A faith that has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, God coming into our hearts and indwelling in us, making us a temple. Is that changing you? Disciples realize that Jesus is the center of our life. We are not. Disciples trust that Jesus is God, not ourselves. Disciples trust that Jesus is the end, not the means to the end. And disciples are characterized by this faith that works itself out in prayer and forgiveness. Every week we observe a time in our gathering in which we remember this. We remember Jesus' body being broken on the cross and his blood being shed for us by coming to the table, coming to something that's called communion, the Lord's Supper. Now, normally we have a a gluten-free option. I forgot to get more crackers, so we have a a large piece of bread here that is not gluten-free, so I apologize. My initial plan was to put goldfish crackers on there, but uh, thank you, Nathan, for grabbing that piece of bread. But every week we observe and we come to celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross. That Jesus came as our sacrifice, that he came as our priest, that he came as our temple, that through his life, death, and resurrection, we now can have communion with God. We now can be restored to God. We can now walk in newness of life and freedom in Christ. We celebrate that. We remember that. As we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, we hear the words of the gospel saying, Christ's body broken for you. We hear the words of the gospel, Christ's blood shed for you. And as we do this each week, we should be thinking about the sins that Jesus is forgiving, the way that the Holy Spirit is changing us, the way that Jesus is changing us. We should anticipate the the soon return of Jesus in which we're not going to be fighting and wrestling and striving against this this sin and this self and these things that we place into the center of our life other than Jesus is going to be all Jesus 
No sin, no suffering, no death, no pain. All Jesus fully restored in the garden. Total flourishing in what's called the new earth. This is what we do every week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I ask, as we do this now, that if you are a disciple, that you take some time to reflect on what this means and how it is changing you. If you, however, are not a disciple, you are not a a believer in Jesus, you have not trusted him to be uh, your Lord and Savior, that you, instead of coming to the table, refrain and think about the words that have being said, the words that will be sung, and that if you have any questions about Jesus and the life that he offers and the way that he transformed your life, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about that. Let's pray.